Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My talk is titled Notes on the Postmodern Museum. In moments of uncertainty, it sometimes helps to step back, to try to make sense of the myriad changes that have taken place in museums in recent years, changes of scale, character, and outlook. I'd like to take the long view and propose that we are now in what I call the third phase of the great age of the American Art Museum <laughs> that began in the last quarter of the 19th century. What makes this period so different from those that preceded it is the questioning, even overturning, of many of the premises and principles that guided museums in the past. The first phase, let's call it the foundational phase, saw the founding of institutions such as the Met, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as, in the early 20th century, the creation of the Museum of Modern Art, the National Gallery of Art, and those house museums established by private collectors like Isabella Stewart Gardner, Duncan Phillips, and Albert C. Barnes, although in the latter case, he didn't think so much in terms of a museum as an educational foundation. We can mark the close of this first foundational phase precisely, November 3rd, 1961. That was the day the National Gallery in Washington opened Tutankhamun Treasures. The first ever exhibition of artifacts from the tomb of the New Kingdom Pharaoh, over a period of nearly six years, it traveled to 18 cities in the United States, six in Canada, three in Japan, before concluding the tour in Paris. Thus began a new, more ambitious and energetic phase that would come to be known as the blockbuster era. King Tut, in fact, became its emblem, the gift that kept on giving because the National Gallery's show was the first in what would turn out to be four globe-trotting King Tut shows over as many decades, making the boy king probably the only pharaoh to have spent his afterlife not in the company of Ra and Osiris, but as a passenger aboard the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> One other event helped define this period. <clears throat> that was the appointment of Thomas Hoving as director of the Met, on March 17, 1967. Where in the foundational phase, museums had gone about their business quietly, being to some extent <laughs> rather sleepy affairs with a small elite public, now with Hoving setting the pace, museums adopted a healthy populism, working as never before to make their collections and art in all its aspects as exciting and accessible as possible. Both periods shared a common mission, to convey a sense of the unfolding history of art, to instill a discriminating taste, and an understanding of the language of art. The museum regarded itself as a proactive force, an educator, an arbiter of taste, with the work of art the focus and center of the visitor experience. Can we point to a similarly clear-cut beginning of this third phase, the era of the postmodern museum, as we could with the blockbuster era? I think we can. The pivotal moment came with the turn of the millennium, the opening in October 1999 of the first of MoMA's Modern Starts exhibitions, and the opening a few months later, May 2000, of Tate Modern, the London Tate Gallery's newly consecrated space for modern and contemporary art in a repurposed power station in the city's Bankside district. Both events seemed commonplace enough at the time 
yet in retrospect they appear as auguries of the future. The best way, <coughs> the best way to understand the changes that have taken place during this period, I think, is to think in terms of a series of altered relationships, and I identify three. First is the altered relationship to the past. This is the most sweeping change, as it takes many forms. There is, first of all, the priority given to contemporary art in museums today, which is so overwhelming as to have made it virtually an absolute value. Acquisitions, exhibitions, curatorial appointments, board seats, and expansion plans now all revolve around contemporary art to an extent we haven't seen previously. There's nothing wrong in principle with museums showing the art of our time. Indeed, it can be useful as a kind of rough draft of our first draft of art history. But contemporary art is best understood in relation to the past, and this becomes hard to do when, as is increasingly the case, it is promoted as an end in itself. As a corollary to this, there is the changed relationship to the past as represented by the museum's own collections. Exhibit A in this regard is the Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo, which in 2006 consigned some 200 objects from its permanent collection to auction. Among the objects disposed of were an ancient Chinese bronze wine vessel that the Buffalo News reported to be one of only a handful in existence, and a 10th century life-size statue of the god Shiva. Regarding this object, a Sotheby's specialist told the Associated Press at the time, in what seemed like a tone of stupefaction, <clears throat> that it was, quote, without question, the most important Indian sculpture ever to appear on the market. Close, close quote. African, pre-Columbian, and Egyptian artifacts, artifacts, as well as old master paintings, were sold. The purpose of these sales? To raise money for modern and contemporary acquisitions. This has now become virtually standard practice. Then there is the changed relationship to the past we know as the history of art. MoMA's modern starts exhibitions were significant first because for the first time the museum abandoned the chronological installation of its permanent collection, its long-standing view of the history of modern art as a steady evolution driven by a succession of innovators in favor of one that mixed artists, periods, styles, and media in order to, as it said at the time, quote, explore relationships and shared themes. It was also significant because in so doing, the actual and implied value judgments that are integral to such a reading of history were abandoned. Instead, we got a level playing field where all artists were equally accomplished and notable, mainly for their affinities. Thus, Paul Cezanne's 1885 bather was juxtaposed with a 1993 photograph of a boy in a bathing suit by contemporary Dutch photographer Rieneke Jikstra. So uh, turning the artist famously described by Picasso as the father of us all into just one more paint slinger who happened to be, who happened to be taking the human figure as his subject. But what made those shows a watershed event is that this approach, the museum stepping back from its historical, historic role of explaining through its displays the story of art, soon became the norm, the model for displaying modern contemporary art. MoMA institutionalized when it reopened in 1995 after expanding, as have Tate Modern, the New Whitney, and others. 
Thus, Glenn Lowry, in announcing two years ago MoMA's next expansion, said, quote, our goal is to provide visitors with the pleasure of finding their own meaning within a singularly inclusive constellation of 20th and 21st century artistic practices. More recently, Martino Stierli, the museum's chief curator of architecture and design, told the Wall Street Journal that the overall goal of From the Collection, 1960 to 1969, its reinstallation of work from the 60s was, quote, to come away from prescribing art history to the audience, close quote. In, instead of assigning topics to each gallery, the article continued, quote, we did it the other way around and let the objects start a conversation between themselves. This new approach is a perfect reflection of our relativistic, value-free, postmodern zeitgeist, hence the name I have given to this phase of, of museum's history. To get an idea of just what it implies, imagine walking into a museum's Renaissance galleries, and instead of starting with Giotto, the first work you saw was by some mannerist, then Mantegna, then Gentile da Fabriano, then Raphael, then Sassetta, on and on and on. You wouldn't know any more about Renaissance art when you left than you did when you walked in. Or as the art critic for the Daily Telegraph put it when he previewed the new Switch House galleries at Tate Modern this spring, quote, by removing chronology as a way of understanding art, the rehang risks losing all sense of meaning. The second altered relationship is the relationship to the object itself. Once considered central to the museum experience, the object is increasingly being relegated to a supporting role. It is by now a commonplace for our experience of the object in a museum to be mediated by technology, an app, a handheld device of some kind, or in the case of the Cleveland Museum of Art's collection wall, a vast touchscreen with an infinity of images from the museum's collection the visitor is invited to move and explore as he or she pleases. In all these cases, pure aesthetic experience must vie with the delivery of information. Then there is the selfie culture. Museums that permit selfies in their galleries, and they pretty much all do now, are downgrading the works in their own collections to the status of stage props, things you stand next to and have your picture taken with rather than things you stand in front of and look at. We see the object diminished too in the new attitude toward museum architecture. The best museum, <clears throat> the best museum architecture of the recent past did more than just house artworks. It served as well as a kind of handmaiden to the art experience itself. Here I think <clears throat> particularly of Louis Kahn's Yale Center for British Art, so splendidly renovated and reopened this spring. Though it is powerful and deeply moving as an architectural experience in its own right, everything about its design, proportions, and spaces is geared to setting off the works of art to best advantage and creating conditions conducive to looking at them. Beginning with Tate Modern, a very different set of imperatives has driven the design of museums, in part because of the increased scale of contemporary art and because of the extraordinary popularity of museums today the premium is now on vast, barely articulated spaces that do not invite, and in some cases do not even permit, stopping and looking at something. Instead, art and the object have been subordinated to the accommodation and fluid motion of crowds. Most alarmingly of all, 
in the upper councils of arts policy making, the art object is now considered virtually an anachronism. Last spring, Karen Middleman, director of the Division of Public Programs at the National Endowment for the Humanities, wrote in the latest issue of their magazine that, that, quote, if you walked into a large museum in the 1980s or 90s, you would have seen galleries full of objects from the museum's collection, carefully chosen and arranged by a curator with a label explaining what you were looking at. Today, this kind of static display seems almost antiquated. And what sort of display does Ms. Middleman think should replace it? This brings us to our final change, the altered relationship of the museum to its traditional mission. Today, museums are increasingly being called on to put aesthetics aside and serve as venues for politically and socially engagé programming. Thus, after dismissing the almost antiquated static displays of yesteryear, Ms. Middleman lays out her, grand, her vision of a brave new world of museums. Quote, museum goers now have the expectation, the expectation when they walk into a museum that they will be interacting with the content on display, curating their own virtual exhibits, sharing information about museum artifacts via social media, or participating in some kind of public dialogue around issues important to them. And what might those issues be? She is ready to tell us. They are, quote, inequality, immigration, health, and aging. Not accidentally, perhaps, all issues dear to the hearts of our progressive politicians. But there's more. Quote, until quite recently, she continues, NEH's grant guidelines did not speak directly to this vital role for museums, libraries, and historical societies. Not to worry, though, she's on the case. Quote, in the NEH Division of Public Programs, we have been re-envisioning our grant programs to respond to these changes. The message is clear. Henceforth, institutions hoping for NEH funding are going to be expected to fall into line and, and quote, serve as town halls, spaces where citizens can come together to talk and debate issues of significance to their communities, close quote. And because endowment grants are looked at as the good housekeeping seal of approval by private sector funders, if museums hope to secure additional corporate and foundation support, there will be no way of avoiding compliance with what amounts to a government diktat. At the outset of these remarks, I said we were in the third phase of the great age of museums, thereby implying the latest stage in a continuum. But are we? Or have we entered a new, altogether different era of museums? The changes I've described are profound, <clears throat> transformative even, and give every indication of being far-reaching, if not permanent. The focus of these changes is the museum's very essence, its raison d'etre the primacy of the art object and the visitor's experience of it. One thing is certain, a new kind of museum is taking shape before our eyes. What its final form will be and whether it will bear any relation to the institution as we have come to know it, only time will tell. Thank you. <laughs>